Good to see you this morning. Y'all turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27. When I was in my mid-20s and I was brand new as a pastor, one day a friend of mine who was a member of our church where I was pastoring uh, asked me to drive his wife to, the, to her doctor, to a doctor's appointment. And this is a woman about my mom's age, and uh, he worked as a, a barber. He charged $4 a haircut. Seriously, um, he could not take off. He was, you know, he said, can you take her? And sounds like kind of a no-brainer. That's something I should do, right? There were a couple of problems. First of all, my friend didn't have health insurance, and so his wife's doctor was basically at an indigent hospital three hours away. So that was an all-day thing. You drive her there, you sit in the doctor's office for an hour or two, you drive home. And secondly, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I have to, I didn't like his wife. Yeah, you know, I know it sounds terrible, and I'm, I'm, she's in heaven now, but she was just one of those kinds of people that just rubbed me the wrong way. She was always negative, always complaining about things. She probably had a lot to complain about, but she, she still... Plus, she, she was really liked attention. She, she suffered from these fainting spells, but they were convenient fainting spells. Um, so, like, we noticed, we're, we were a little bitty church, we noticed if there was ever a man in the congregation who she didn't recognize, she would have one, especially if he was close by, because, she, you know, all the other men in the congregation kind of knew, okay, this is, here we go again, but the new guy would run over and help her, and so that was, it was just kind of convenient that way. We, we could predict it. So one day, for instance, um, I won't tell you who, but someone I knew well, was in the church for the first time in a long time, and, and we had kind of told him this was going on. And so when, as they were walking out, after the service was over, he looked at her, and right then she just sort of slumped down to the ground. And he looked at her for a second and said, huh, and kept walking. Um, <laughs> and he told me later that, that later that day he saw her, and she gave him a real dirty look. And I, I have to admit, that gave me a lot of satisfaction to hear that story. Um, but this is the person I was going to have to spend all day with in a close, confined location. Um, so I took her. I couldn't say no. I mean, this was a good friend. He cut my hair for free, even though you know, he made nothing. He wouldn't take any money from me. And I have to admit, I had a terrible attitude that day. I mean, I was outwardly cordial. I wasn't rude. But the whole time, I was just kind of stewing on the inside, thinking, what a waste of a day this is. I've got tons of things I could be doing. I'm a I'm a minister of the gospel. I could be writing sermons. I could be, I could be doing good deeds. I could be leading the church. And here I am stuck with this person. What a waste of a day. Now I got home and for the next few weeks I would tell that story to friends and relatives and they'd all say, oh yeah, man, you shouldn't have to do that kind of stuff. And yet, and yet, we're closing today our series called Connecting. We're talking about worship. We've talked about how as a church, our vision is to become totally renovated from the inside out, that, that we would become not just a place that does church and has programs, but a place where people's lives get changed, a place specifically where people become disciples of Jesus Christ who make other disciples of Jesus Christ. And that means if we are the church we're supposed to be, each person in here and everybody who becomes part of this family is going to see themselves change consistently over time, growing and becoming someone new. And change happens in specific ways. You don't just... You don't just get changed by sitting in a church building any more than you become a Buick by sitting in a garage. I mean, you get changed because, number one, you connect with God through worship. Number two, because you grow in Christ-like qualities as you pursue Him. And, and number three, as you reach out in love to others. And that's how you become a new person. 
And so all through, since the beginning of the year, our first Sunday on, on New Year's Day, we've been talking about what it means to connect with God in worship. We've talked about singing, why we sing in, in church. Why we've talked about worshiping Him through obeying his, obeying his commands, through being in His Word every day and meditating upon it. We've talked about worshiping Him through your work and, and doing your job with excellence and glorifying Him. Last week, we talked about glorifying God and connecting with Him every time we're generous. And, and support his work. But today, we're going to talk about what James calls, the brother of Jesus calls, true religion. So James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So here's the brother of Jesus himself who says, here's what, here's what true religion looks like. And when he's, he's talking about it, he's using some Old Testament kind of te- uh, terminology, religion that is pure and faultless, pure and undefiled, some verses say it. And it harkens back to the very beginning of God's dealing with people. Because right at the beginning of the founding of the nation of Israel, God said, I'm going to set apart this whole, pe- this whole nation, this whole group of people, my chosen people, not because I love them more than others, but because I want the world to see a case study of what it looks like when a group of people is blessed by God and follows Him faithfully. So that through them, there'll be a light to the nations and all nations will be drawn. And from the very beginning, He said, I'm God. I'm not like other people. And I'm not like those gods you made up in the past. I'm holy. And you have to approach me the right way. There is a right and a wrong way to worship God. And we get that. If you've been raised in church like a lot of us in this room, if you were raised in church, you, you understood there's a certain way you behave and a certain way you dress. I remember as a little boy thinking, you know, i got to get dressed up on Sundays. The only day of the week when I wore shirts with stiff collars was Sundays. And you had to act a certain way. There was a certain period of time in my life where every Sunday between getting home from church and, between, and, and, and sitting down to Sunday dinner, I got a spanking because of the way I had acted in church. And fortunately for me, that ended about the time I turned 35. But it was a, it was a rough time uh, of life. Carrie was tired of doing it every, every week. But um, as adults, we understand God is God and we have to approach Him correctly. And for a lot of us, that means making sure our doctrine is pure. And our moral standards are correct and we're living the right way. And all that's true. But notice that when James talks about pure and undefiled religion, he doesn't mention how we look or what we wear. He doesn't mention our doctrine. He doesn't mention our behavior except to say two things. Take care of widows and orphans and keep yourself unpolluted. Now, what does that mean exactly? When he talks about widows and orphans, please understand, he's not saying God only wants you to be nice to women who've lost their husbands and children who have no parents. He's not just limiting it to that. Widows and orphans in the ancient world were the most vulnerable people in the society. They had no recourse. They had nothing. If society didn't take care of them, they would starve. And so the term widows and orphans sort of became a catch-all phrase to mean people who were at the end of their rope, people who needed help one way or another. People who were struggling. My friend's wife was not an orphan or a widow, but she needed my help that day. That was an example. So James says, you want to connect with God, you do it by by reaching out to people who, who need help. And then when he talks about being unpolluted by the world, we hear that and we think, oh, well, he means... Don't go to rated R movies, you know. Don't go to beer joints. Don't don't laugh at dirty jokes. But that's not what he's talking about. 
the world, whenever the Bible talks about the world in these kinds of terms, it's talking about the philosophy of life on earth today. And what is our world? What is, what is the message, the sermon that our world is preaching to us every day through commercials, through conversations over the water cooler, through the current events? What we hear over and over again, the message we hear is, it's all about you. Life is up to you. You make the decisions. Do what feels good. Don't let anybody stand in the way of you achieving your dreams and fulfilling your desires. Don't let anybody tell you what to do and what not to do. It's all about you. You do it. And James says, no, 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 don't fall for that. Don't be polluted by that. It's not about you. It's about God and it's about others. It's about giving your life away, not keeping it all for yourself. That's the kind of religion that God accepts as pure and undefiled. And it has nothing to do with singing songs and and listening to sermons. It has to do with your contact with people who are at the end of their rope. By the way, have you ever heard anybody say, my favorite verse in the Bible is, God helps those who help themselves? Anybody ever hear that? Maybe some of you have said that. Find that in the Bible. It's not there. Actually, the message of the Bible is the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves. So if we want to connect with God, if we want to be on the same page as him and really experience him, we're going to be in the presence of people who can't do anything for us, who can't necessarily do what they need to do for themselves, and we're going to be there for them. Now, what I'm going to do with the rest of our time together is I want to show you how that is is such a dominant theme throughout the scriptures. It's not something that James just brings out of nowhere. That's from Genesis to Revelation. That's the message of the scriptures. And then at the end, I'm going to show you, uh, I'm going to talk about four things, four reasons why sometimes we're not as compassionate as the Word of God says we should be. So there are hundreds of passages in the Bible that talk about helping those who are unfortunate, who are needy can't cover them all. Let me, just, let me just show you a few things. First of all, from the very beginning of Israel's founding, God basically said two things. I know there's this huge law of Moses, but you can sum it up in two things. First of all, he said, have no other gods before me. That's the, that's the first command, right? The first commandment in the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. He was telling the Israelites, don't worship other gods. All these other nations worship multiple gods, You're going to be unique because you're going to worship me and me alone. And there's not going to be an image of me. You're not going to have a statue to pray to or a painting to look at. It's just going to be me. And you keep faithful to me or you'll lose your nation. But he also said, take care of the orphan. Take care of the widow. Take care of the stranger, the alien, the foreigner who's who's just sojourning through your land. Take care of those who are destitute, those who are depressed, those who are brokenhearted. And God said, if you don't do those two things, you'll no longer be a people. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to continue to bless you if you're not going to be distinct in those two ways. In fact, there's a story from early on, before there was ever in Israel, you're probably familiar, many of you, with this, this, this story of two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, long before Israel, early in Genesis, there are these two cities, rich, wealthy cities. All the people wanted to live there. And God in one day destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone from heaven. Literal fire and sulfur came raining down from the sky and destroyed these two cities. Hundreds of thousands of people died. And why? And if you know the story, you'd probably say, well, it's because there was homosexuality in those stories, in those cities. And God wanted to punish them for their sin. And it is true, that sin was prevalent in those cities. 
And it's true that God has a very specific standard for our sexuality because he loves us and he knows what's good for us. And he says, here's, here's what I created sex for, and it's for a man and woman within marriage, period. Anything else, even though you may think it's what you want, it's not really good for you. That's all true, but that's not why God destroyed those cities. You know why I can say that? Because God says so. The only passage in the Bible that talks about why God destroyed those cities is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, 49. The prophet Ezekiel is talking to the, the people of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 16, 49, and he's talking about, you're like Sodom, Jerusalem. You're, you're just like her, and you're going to experience her fate if, the, if, if you don't change. And here's what he says. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were greedy. They were selfish. They were stingy. They didn't care about those who were less fortunate, and that's why they were destroyed. And God says, that's going to happen to you, Israel. Let me read you a longer passage. Just stick with me on this. This is seven or eight verses. Exodus 22, 20 through 27. This is in the, in the founding law of Israel. He says, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. That's pretty straightforward, right? Don't worship any other gods. But then he goes on and says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So God is saying, yes, it's important for you to be faithful to me, but it's equally important for you to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. You see someone in your land who doesn't, who's not from there, who doesn't speak your language, who doesn't know the customs. By the way, do we have any people in our city who are like that? Yeah, I think so. God says, take care of those people because I'm on their side. You're mean to them. I'm going to be mean to you. You see somebody who's struggling because they don't have a dad in their home who can provide for them or, or they don't have a husband who's taking care of their physical needs. You fill in the gap and you take care of them. Your neighbor needs your help and comes to you and says, I can't pay my light bill. I, I'm, I'm about to be evicted. I, I, my, my son needs clothes for school. You don't, you don't treat that as a business deal. You don't say, okay, I'll give you this money now, but you better give me that plus 50%. You see it as an opportunity to help. You don't even ask for the money back. They pay you back when they can, but it's not about that. God says that's how you treat people. And he made an interesting promise. Not only was there the warning that if you're not compassionate, I'm going to judge you as a nation and you're going to lose your home, there was also the positive side in Deuteronomy 15.4 when he said, hey, if you do these things, there will be no poor among you. God made this astonishing promise that they would be a nation that is unlike any other, that in all the world there was no nation where there was no poor people. And notice, he, he didn't say that everybody would have the same amount. God never promised that. Even in heaven, we're not all going to have the same amount. Some people who, who gave more to the Lord are going to get more back, and that's the way it should be. But he said, in Israel, there should be nobody poor. Everybody should have enough. Everybody should be able to eat and clothe their children. Everybody should be able to, to know that they have a, a, some security in life. And can you imagine, in the ancient world where poverty was so much more prevalent than it is in our world today, can you imagine that there would be a nation, a tiny little country called Israel, that was unique because there were no poor people? Do you think word would get out 
across the Mediterranean and then into Asia and, and across the world? Do you think that kings from other countries would have come miles and miles just to sit and listen and, and figure out what, what is their secret? What, what are they doing that they have no poor? And then the Israelites could have said, well, it's our God. We, we worship the one true God. And do you think that would have changed the world? Yeah. That was the idea. But sad to say, the Israelites never did it. First of all, they weren't faithful to God. They, they would worship Yahweh in the temple on the holy days, but then they would have their little shrines to the other gods in their backyard or in their house. And second of all, they weren't compassionate. The prophets came along and said, you're, you're not doing what we said. You're not living according to the word of God. You're mistreating the poor. You're, you're taking advantage of your workers and not paying them fair wages. You're not celebrating a, a year of jubilee twice a century and, and setting slaves free and canceling debts. You're, you're all about yourselves, just like everybody else, and you should have been my people. And so sure enough, just like God said, they lost their country. The Babylonians swept in and destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, carried the people off. And there was no Israel. For centuries, there was no Israel. And then they came back. They came trickling back in. And the Persians let them come back and resettle. By the time Jesus was born, there was an Israel again, but it was now under the boot of Rome. And there was this group, this group of men, these holy men called the Pharisees who said it's our job to keep it from ever happening again. So we're going to make sure that the Israelites never worship anybody but the one true God. And they were good at that. They knew all 613 commands of what we call the Old Testament. They knew them backwards and forwards and, and kept them studiously. And they, they were the moral policemen of their society. They saw somebody getting out of line. They would make sure that they, they found uh, public shame for their actions. But where they messed up was they forgot the other half of the equation. They knew about be faithful to God, but they weren't compassionate. In fact, in fact, one thing that you find is if self-righteousness is the founding principle of your religious belief, if your whole religion is built on, look how holy I can be, I'm better than you, then your tendency toward people who are hurting is going to be, hey, if you'd made better choices like I did, you wouldn't be in this position I'm not going to subsidize your foolishness. And Jesus came along and he, it's so funny, it, it blew everyone's mind. Here's the, the man who proclaimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And instead of criticizing the enemies of Israel that everybody wanted him to lash out, and instead of criticizing the, the sinners within their midst, he criticized the holy people. And his harshest words were for those Pharisees. And here's one in, in Luke 20, 47. He said, the, the Pharisees, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Can you imagine somebody coming into this place and calling out the pastoral staff and deacons saying, those guys are a bunch of snakes, get rid of them. And that's essentially what Jesus was doing and people must have gasped in astonishment. But Jesus was clear, you can't just be right with God if you're not right with your neighbor. Jesus even said it that way. There's two commands, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord. You can't do just one, you've got to do both. The first day of Jesus' public ministry, he stood in the synagogue he grew up in, there in Nazareth, and they said, hey, he's a visiting rabbi, let's have him give the lesson today. He stood up and he took the, the scroll of Isaiah. He could have read anything from Isaiah, but he chose Isaiah 61. And this is found in Luke 4.18. He, he read this quote from, from Isaiah 61. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim 
freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's the Messiah showing up finally after hundreds of years of expectation, and you would think he would say, I have come to make Israel great and powerful and triumphant over its enemies. But no, he says, no, I've come, I've come to go down to the bottom and, and help those who can't help themselves. That was his mission. You know, Jesus told some parables that are very famous. One of them is the parable of the Good Samaritan, talking about loving your neighbor. So he tells this story, the point of which, basically, I won't go into the story, but the the basic message of the story is, if you want to love your neighbor, if you want to help those who can't help themselves, sometimes it's going to mean helping sacrificially people who you were raised to hate and despise, people who really don't like you back. And he told also this story that we call the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he said, someday I'm coming back when the Son of Man returns. There's going to be a great judgment day. We all know that, right? But he, he told it a unique way. He said he's, he's going to separate the, the sheep from the goats, people into one camp and another. And the sheep are going to be people who spend eternity with God in heaven. And the goats are going to be people who spend eternity separated from God in hell. And what's the difference between those two groups? What's the dividing line? It's not that the sheep go to the right church or that they abstain from the right vices. He says the sheep are the people who clothed the naked and fed the poor and visited the prisoner and tended to the sick and helped the little child who didn't have a daddy. That's, That's the ones. They're the ones who are my children. And the goats didn't do those things, and so they'll be banished from my sight. And and Jesus, in fact, said, if you do one of these things, if you help someone who can't help themselves, you're really helping me. You're not actually helping that person as so much as you're rendering assistance to me and showing love to me. And Jesus wasn't saying that we earn our salvation by blessing poor people. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, though, if you're my child and you've tasted my grace and you've been forgiven and brought into my family... This is the family resemblance. This is how you resemble me, by helping people who can't help themselves. By helping people who don't have anything to offer you back. And he didn't just teach these things, by the way. They weren't just empty words. They weren't just fancy rhetoric. Jesus lived that way. You read his stories, the four Gospels, and you see him doing miracle after miracle and and healing blind people and lame people and deaf people and people who had passed away, bringing them back to life. And you think, well, what is this all about? Well, obviously, it it was signs that the kingdom of God had come and something new was happening on earth. Yes, it was that, but it was more than that. Jesus enjoyed doing these things. And you can tell because he never stopped. He stood there in the hot sun tending to people and ministering to people and and healing them even though it was time to to quit and and go home and go to bed. He kept on doing it. He he wouldn't stop and take a meal. His own family got so worried about him, they, they came to take him home by force because they said, man, you're not even taking care of your own needs. He said, I'm not going with you. I'm here with the people I need to be with. Jesus would, would see a crowd, and you and I might say, man, I've had enough of people for today. It's time for me to get away. Jesus would see a crowd clamoring for his attention, and he would say, they're like sheep without a shepherd. I have to go to them. Jesus would do things he didn't even have to do. Like, he would see a leper, and, and you and I know that he could have said to the leper, hey, man, you stand at a distance. I can see you from there. I'll just say a few words, and you'll be okay, right? No, Jesus walked up to him and put his hands on him. He didn't have to do that. He did it, though. Why? Because that guy hadn't been touched in years. 
since the day he was diagnosed with leprosy and Jesus wanted him to see, hey, you're one of us. I love you. You're, you're, you're a human. Jesus enjoyed helping people. His heart went out to them. He couldn't pass by someone in need and say, I know I can help, but I just don't have time. He had to get involved. And he's calling us to do the very same thing. Long, long ago, over 100 years ago, there was a young woman born in Albania whose name was Agnes. She was a devout, young Roman Catholic woman. She loved the Lord. She loved Jesus. She was passionate about following him. She went into the ministry, became a nun. The church sent her to a, a convent in Calcutta where she began to teach uh, the young daughters of wealthy people in Calcutta, what few wealthy people there were there. And she rose up quickly within that church, within that, uh, within that convent school, until she became headmistress at a very young age. And you might think, well, she really did well for herself. She must have been very happy. But actually, she wasn't. She thought, well, I'm very comfortable here in this place. This isn't what Jesus would want me to do. And so she left that convent and went out on her own and, and just gave her life to the poor. In that poorest of poor cities, she gave her life to the most untouchable of poor people. And she was well-known. She became known all around the world for her compassion and, and for her self-sacrifice. And she often said that when she would hold the hand of a beggar as, as that person died, as she, would, as she would caress the cheek of a leper and tell him that he was loved, that she said, I'm, I'm not really helping that person. I'm actually touching Christ. I, I felt like I'm, I'm touching my Lord at that very moment. And the world began to know her as, uh, by her baptismal name of Mother Teresa. They, they would send reporters to interview her. She was featured on, on nightly news reports and, and documentaries. People would make pilgrimages to her, uh, to her place to sit and, and walk in her footsteps for a week, and it would change their lives. And in 1994, the President of the United States invited Mother Teresa to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. Some of you remember this. In the nightly news, they showed, here, here she is standing, this tiny, shriveled Albanian woman standing on a box just to be able to reach the microphone and speaking passionately about faith in God and about compassion for others and about the sanctity of every single human life, including the life that is still yet unborn. And she's speaking in front of a president who has invited her, but a president who does not believe that an unborn child is fully human and deserving of equal rights. And she's, she has the audacity to tell him that he's wrong. And she, she said those unmistakable and unforgettable words, America, if you don't want your children, bring them to me. And it, it, it astonished everyone. And people who believed in her cause were, were gratified, and people who didn't were astonished, but nobody spoke against her because she had this incredible credibility because of the life that she led. And I say that to say this, as American Christians, we want very badly to influence our culture for good. And we want very badly to see uh, the, the things that are wrong about society change toward the right. And nobody seems to be listening to us. And day by day, our influence is getting less and less. And I think part of the reason why is because we skipped right over the compassion. And the world doesn't see us loving those who are hurting. We've skipped right over compassion and tried to go straight to political power, which is much more gratifying and much easier. And it's not working. And the world needs to see something different than the same old political games and the same old rhetoric if we want to change the world. Why is it so hard for us? I know there are people in this room that are incredibly compassionate, people in this room who lead ministries of compassion, people who volunteer tirelessly, 
but I bet most of us wouldn't say that's our leading characteristic. Why not? If we're people of the, of the Lord, if, if we're children of Jesus, I think there's four reasons that I can think of why it's hard for us to follow the commands of, of God in this. The first is what I'd call the theological reason. We sort of biblicize it. We say, didn't Jesus say the poor you will always have with you? You know, Jesus said we'll always have poor people, so it's no use even trying to help poor people because they'll always be there. It won't do any good. Yes, he did say the poor you will always have with you. Do you know why he said that? When he said that? It was in Matthew 26. The last week of Jesus' life, a woman came up and, and poured this expensive perfume over his head and anointed him essentially for his coming burial, worshipped him with the most expensive things she owned. And the people there, especially Judas, especially him, keep that in mind, said, hey, this is such a waste. You should have taken that perfume and sold it and given the money to the poor, sort of like I thought it was a waste of my day to drive a friend's wife to the doctor. Jesus wasn't saying, don't help the poor. You read all of his teachings, he taught the opposite. By the way, by the way, the Bible says there will always be sin. There will always be be people separated from God by sin. Certainly, we don't take that to mean we shouldn't help people get saved and change their lives because it's always going to exist. Jesus was saying, as long as you live, you will have the opportunity to help people who are poor because they'll always be around. But this woman understood she had a limited amount of time to touch me in the flesh and to be with me, and she took advantage of it. Don't biblicize this. There's nothing spiritual about a lack of compassion. I'll tell you a second reason it's hard for us, and that's the personal reason. Helping people is messy, inconvenient, and uncomfortable. And many of you have experienced this. Let me just be clear about something. When I talk about helping people, I'm not talking about handing a couple of bucks to the guy holding a sign at the intersection. That's not helping people. Chances are, handing him money is not helping him in the least. It may be the worst thing. Unless you know his circumstances and you know what he's going to do with that money, handing him money may be the the worst thing you can do for him. I'm, I'm talking about getting involved in someone's life meeting their needs and helping them get out of the ditch they've fallen into, whether their ditch is in terms of finances or in terms of personal grief or or in terms of, of loneliness or in terms of physical or mental illness or just needing somebody to listen to them. And and many of you have experienced this. When you when you're compassionate, it does not make your life easier, does it? because you get phone calls in the middle of the night from this person you've agreed to help, or right when you're about to go out to eat or at some other inconvenient time, um, you, you get to see some of the ugly side of humanity. And let's be honest, let's be frank, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes people are struggling because of mistakes they've made, because they've made bad choices. And those bad choices don't usually end once you get involved. And so you'll have the opportunity to come alongside someone and think, oh, I've got them on the right track. And then they make another bad choice. And and you feel useless. And, and uh, you know, one, one instance I heard about once was a, a, a teacher who had a little boy in her class, and his family didn't have a refrigerator. So he never had fresh food on, uh, on school days, and so she took up a collection among her fellow teachers, and they raised up enough money to buy that family a refrigerator, and they gave them the money, and then come to find out the, the parents took the money and, and took the family on a trip to Las Vegas. I mean, things like this happen when you help people sometimes. You feel taken advantage of. You get disappointed. 
Sometimes there are even moments when you've helped someone uh, enough where you say, I, I can't do anything more for you. I'm tapped out. All of these things are true, are they not? And yet none of these, re- none of these things are a reason to ever say, I- I'm done helping people. It's messy, it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, we're still supposed to do it. Third reason, third reason is a practical reason why sometimes we're not as compassionate as we should be because it makes more sense just to outsource it. There are good organizations that do great work and they can help more people if we give to them than we could if we just went out handing out dollars. And that's the truth. You talk about mission organizations... The work that they do, you talk about uh, right here in our city, the Salvation Army, Crisis Assistance Center, Conroe House of Prayer, uh, Under Over. These are organizations that do incredible work, and we should support them. If you can support those organizations above and beyond your tithe, do it. It's money well spent. But don't let that stop you from getting involved in the lives of people God brings into your life personally. Don't say, well, I gave it the office. I don't need to help this person. Because then you miss the opportunity of connecting with God personally through touching the life of someone who God has brought into your life. And I said it a few weeks ago, and I don't know how you felt about it. I'm going to say it again and see if I get fired. But most of the people in this room don't need another Bible study. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people in this room, I'm sure, that need to get into the Word of God more, and you don't read God's Word enough, and you should, and if you need help with that, I'd love to help you. But a lot of people in this room, you read the Bible every day. You meditate on God's Word. You show up Sunday mornings without fail. You go to life group. You study the Bible there. You're in BSF or some other Bible study. You're listening to sermons on on the radio. You've got podcasts. You don't need another Bible study. You know what you need? You need to get involved in the life of your neighbor. Not like a busybody, but walk across the street and say, hey, I heard, I heard about your son. Is there anything I can do for you? I heard you lost your job. Do you need some help? Hey, I, I know you've been in the hospital. Can I mow your yard for you? Hey, I know you're a single mom, and, and are there ever times you need me to keep your kids so you can get some things done? That, that's, what you're mess, that's what you're lacking in your spiritual diet is that face-to-face contact with Jesus Christ that comes, only comes, only comes when we get involved in the life of someone who's at the end of their rope. Number four, there's a fourth reason, and that's an honest reason. And a lot of us would say, I just don't know any struggling people. And that's honest. Because in, in Jesus' day, you couldn't avoid people who were struggling. They were all around you. You'd go to the temple and the paupers would be, the beggars would be standing there waiting for alms uh, for the, from the righteous folks going in and out. You would, you would throw a dinner party. And in that culture, you throw a dinner party, you have to open it to the entire village. And so the poor would come in and they would, they would grab a plate and they would serve themselves. And you weren't allowed to stop them. You, you couldn't help but see those who were hurting. But in our society, we sort of segregate ourselves away from that. You know, we live in neighborhoods where we don't have to be near someone who has less than us. And, and even in our own, on our job or in our neighborhood, somebody may be struggling, but the way our society's built, we want to hide that. You know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm so depressed, I can barely get out of bed. I don't want you to know that. If I cry myself to sleep every night, I'm not going to tell you. We hide it. We put on a face. We put on a facade. And so that's why my challenge for you this week, and, and it's, in your, it's in your bulletin, you're at, in your at first guide, your prayer emphasis for this week is, is simply this. Pray every day, Lord, give me eyes to see the people who are hurting today and wisdom to know how to help them. 
because we won't see them unless he shows us. Give me eyes to see and wisdom to know. About a decade ago, I was uh, working on a, on a degree, and one of my classes was in Birmingham, Alabama, and so I, I booked a flight to Birmingham. And I'm, I'm one of these guys, I don't fly very often. I fly so rarely, I think it's fun to go to the airport. Yay, search me! You know, it's really fun. Um, and so I was, I was on my way there, and I was thinking about all those stories I'd read about preachers who get on airplanes and they get seated next to the Muslim imam or next to the atheist professor or, you know, whoever, and they end up converting them to Christianity by the time they land. And I was like, man, it would be really cool if that would happen to me. And, and so I prayed and I said, Lord, use me on this flight. Just show me someone I can reach out to. And so as we're there in Hobby Airport and, and we're lining up to get boarded on the airplane, and I'm standing behind this woman, mid-50s, I'd say, and she's holding this huge stuffed animal. And I said, wow, that's a really big bear. And she turns and she says, yeah, it's, it's for my granddaughter. And she's three years old. And I, and I started talking to her about her granddaughter. You know, we're just standing in the line. It's going to take a while to board. And she tells me that the reason she's going to visit her granddaughter is that the granddaughter's mom, this woman's daughter, is having open-heart surgery. You know, very young woman, young mother, but she's having open heart surgery. Her life is in danger. And she's going to spend, you know, sit the, the little girl while the mom recovers. And she's very worried. She's very concerned. And I said, ma'am, would you like me to pray for you and your daughter right now? And right there in the middle of Hobby Airport, she starts to cry just because I asked that question. I put my arm around her and I, I prayed for her and her daughter and her granddaughter. And I knew, okay, this is why God put me on this plane. This, is, this was the person I was supposed to talk to. And so on the way back, back to Houston, I prayed again, okay, Lord, let's do it again. And this time, you know, didn't really meet anybody boarding the plane, got on the plane, the guy next to me immediately fell asleep, which, you know, is very typical for us Baptist preachers. And um, so, you know, I'm thinking, okay, maybe nothing's going to happen. And then getting off the plane, there's this young guy, young African-American guy walking next to me. And I looked at him and I said, hey, so do you live in Houston? You coming home? He said, no, I don't actually live here. My mom used to, but she passed away a couple of days ago, and I, I'm, I'm here for the funeral. I'm like, okay. Is it okay with you if I pray with you right here? And he goes, yeah, absolutely. And so we prayed. And he didn't cry like the woman did, but he gave me this big hug, and I knew this is why God put me there. And sometimes it can be as simple as that. Sometimes it can be much more complicated. But they're all around us, and God can give you eyes to see them if you just have the courage to pray it and give him the opportunity. I think back on that day, I drove my friend's wife to the doctor, and I, I think about the opportunity I missed. Because I did the deed, but I didn't really connect with God that day. All I could think about was the inconvenience to me, how annoyed I was. What a fool. You know, Jesus looked down on me one day before I was ever born, and on you, and he saw that we weren't just struggling. We were desperately lost. We were sinking, sinking within the, the mire and muck of our own sinfulness. Far, far, far from the salvation that we needed. And he could have said, not my problem. Because it really wasn't. And he could have said, they got themselves into this. I'm not going to subsidize their foolishness by getting them out of it. And he'd have been right. And he could have said, it would cost me way too much. And he was right about that too. But he didn't say any of those things. Instead, he said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. 
And I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To give my life. And at that cross, where His love ran red and our sin was washed white, He was all in for us. You know, helping someone who's hurting can be like helping someone who's drowning. They may pull you down with them. We pulled Jesus down with us and He went willingly. And He lifted us up to salvation. He went to death so we could be free. And, and the point of that is, now we're His. And we've got, you know, have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't just rapture us straight up to heaven the moment we get saved? Well, it's so that we can be here where the hurting people are. The one thing you won't be able to do in heaven is show the love of Christ to someone who doesn't know Him and help someone who's hurting. Because those things won't exist up there. Here, while we have this slight, small window of opportunity, we can do for others what Christ did for us and show them there is a God who loves Him, who loves them just as they are. And the, the, the joy of that is immeasurable and the impact of that is eternal.